Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. For the past couple of years, we here at Brooklyn Historical Society have been working on a major project on the history of public health in Brooklyn. Next year, this project will culminate in an exhibition, a website, educational initiatives, and programming. The project is titled Sick, Seven Diseases That Changed Brooklyn. When we first started researching this project, we were amazed by how many 19th century women doctors we were able to find in the historical record and how little scholarship had been done on them. In this episode, we'll talk about women doctors in Brooklyn and consider the gendered history of the medical profession in the 19th century and beyond. One important woman, um, Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, becomes really well known across all of Brooklyn and is treating not just black patients, but white and black men and women. Like by the 1890s, she's sort of known as like one of the pillars of Brooklyn in terms of medicine. Tell us about this Memorial Hospital for Women and Children. It is a hospital for women and it is run completely by women. That's amazing. Yeah, wow. Wow, so it's just like it's women of the staff. Yeah, right. all of it's actually in their bylaws that all of the staff members have to be women. And of course, one of the exciting things that we did find in this was a list of the doctors who worked there. And among that list of the doctors was Susan McKinney Stewart. We're going to listen to Dr. Josephine English, one of New York's first African American female doctors at Harlem Hospital. The medicine was very difficult for women because the men put up a lot of very a big fight. Mm. They did not want the women. I got along with them well, mm-hmm. even though it was difficult. Mm-hmm. But you have to know how to get along with men mm-hmm. who think they are superior to you. I listened to them, and they always seemed to try to teach me. So I wasn't uh, trying to be or go over them or surpass them or equal them. Mm. So I, I got along very well. I made some very fast friends. To dig into the topic of this episode, we are welcoming Erin Webker. Erin is a professor of history and women and gender studies at Queens College, as well as the assistant curator on the SIG project. Erin, thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So Erin, let's go back to the 19th century or even earlier. Mm -hmm. The first question I was thinking I would ask you is, when do we start to see women doctors in Brooklyn? But maybe we should just talk about when we started to see doctors, male and female doctors in Brooklyn. When does this become a key role? Well, there had always obviously been lots of different types of caregivers or people providing medical care for Brooklynites. But we don't see sort of the profession, the medical profession, until the 19th century and really until kind of the middle of the 19th century. That's when 
you start having medical societies and um, standards and licensing and stuff like that for physicians. So before that, you would have had, you know, folk and lay healers and midwives and people sort of serving as doctors or nurses, but they weren't in like an official sense a doctor the way we sort of think of it today. So how did how did people find medical care? You know, when there isn't like someone hanging something out there, hanging a shingle on their door saying "Doctor So and So." How are people finding medical care? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of it would be people in your family would care for you. So oftentimes that would be women would be caring for family members. I think a big part of it is also just like people in the community kind of know who to go to like this is the midwife you know so this is who you go to when you're pregnant or having a baby Um, so that would be a big part of it also you do still have people sort of advertising as healers even before kind of the official profession of of medicine how do we move from the kind of I don't want to say ad hoc, but <laughs> network, social network, family, community. This is a person you go to. How does this start becoming a profession? Well, some of the things we look for, not just in medicine, but other sort of professions that show them trying to become kind of formal and like create, they create standards for education. They create standards for licensing Um, They create journals where they can publish scholarship and have conversations with each other about the field. So these are some of the hallmarks for professionalization of medicine, but we also see it in things like nursing or like law, other things like that. History, right? History, yeah, yeah, all sorts of things, really. So if women were playing big roles as healers before this professional period, do they jump right on the bandwagon and start professionalizing themselves as these standards of licensing and education and training begin to come up? Well, they tried to jump right in, but had a lot of challenges. So yeah, I mean, a lot of, as you you point out before, a lot of medical, uh, people providing medical care would have been women and are sort of cut out as this professionalization process happens. Women do try to enter into it and, you know, go to medical school and get licensed and all this stuff, but it was very difficult. So there were a lot of, um, you know, structural barriers for women trying to enter into the profession. But there are some, you know, even in those earliest years in like the antebellum and Civil War eras. What were some of the structural challenges that women faced? I mean, I'm, I'm so fascinated. I'm thinking about this. I'm like, imagine how things could have been different if, like, these, you know, women just, like, were able to do the part, be part of this process of professionalization. Yeah, well, and I mean, Aaron, you should obviously answer Zahir's question. Yeah. But it also, you know, as Zahir, as you're posing, that it's such medicine and, and caregiving, medical caregiving, is, like, such an interesting thing that really could have an interesting counterfactual. Yeah. Because it's about care right and so many of the like female profession the quote-unquote female professions that are emerging in the 19th century social work nursing teaching are about this idea of care and yet at, at the place that we're at in the 21st century this process of professionalization right. has, of course, alienated the process of care right. from the process of right. you know receiving me- right. you know medical attention. But it didn't always have to be like it didn't. that, right? And so it's interesting that the I mean, even today, the assumption of a male doctor is historically constructed, right? And mm-hmm. so, what were historically some of the barriers that women faced that kind of prevented them from 
making this transition so that we could easily assume that it's a woman doctor? Yeah, well, so one of the big ones is just kind of attitudes and assumptions about what is proper for ladies. So the reason that we do sort of see women getting interested in the professions and medicine in this era is because this is the era of the you know the beginning of feminism in the United States and sort of changing roles for women, the beginnings of sort of... Um, like early women's charity work and stuff. So some women are entering into the public sphere. So that is partially why some women are also interested in entering into medicine is is challenging those assumptions about the home being the proper woman's place. Um, the sort of counterpoint to that, I suppose, is that because medicine is about care and because women do have this history of caring for family and the home and stuff that does work a little to women's advantage where there is sort of a sense of women are naturally inclined to be caregivers. So I think that did, you know, sort of stereotypes and attitudes in some ways hindered female physicians, but also helped them out in some ways. So it's kind of a mixed bag there. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting to think about this in the context of separate spheres ideology too, particularly when you're thinking about not just women doctors, but the care of women mm-hmm. by women. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so like this notion that you would want your caregiver to be a woman for reasons of privacy yeah. and modesty yeah. and the way that like the professionalization of medicine had to kind of, again, pull away that care and create that objective gaze so that men could look at women's yeah. naked bodies, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, part of that, I think, you know, there's this, this idea where men have um, rights to women's bodies in a way that even women don't, right? So that there was almost like this sense of like, well, yes, as a male doctor, I can look at a woman, but a woman can't look at a woman and certainly can't look at a man, right? So I think there's just gender ideas that are, are part of it. What were some of the the institutional ways that women were blocked out of, of this professionalization process? Yeah, like did they go to the same medical schools as, as men? So that was another really big challenge, which is that uh, most medical schools did not admit women. So a very small number over time start to admit women. Um, Most of them are located in the Northeast and the Midwest, and California had a couple. Um, But it's a very small number, and even within that setting, women would have separate lectures. They would sometimes not be allowed to, like, uh, attend clinics on certain issues that were, like, improper, you know, if it was dealing with, like, parts of the male body or Mm -hmm. something like that that would be not proper for ladies. Um, And also I've read accounts of just like straight up harassment by male students or male colleagues, you know, getting comments and all sorts of stuff. Um, So that was a challenge. But then also what ends up happening is a bunch of separate medical schools for women develop, which was really interesting. And so this ends up being where most women are educated in order to become physicians is these separate medical schools that are developed because women are not admitted to other places. So it's one of those things where it does provide sort of more opportunities for women, but ultimately they really did want co-education as the ideal to show that men and women could be the same and do, do just as well in the profession. Were any of those schools in Brooklyn or in this area? Well, there's one major one that's in Manhattan. And so a number of Brooklyn female doctors went to school there and had sort of continued connections there while they practiced medicine in Brooklyn or became associated with 
um, Brooklyn institutions. That was the New York Medical College for women and also had a hospital associated with it. So um, one important woman, um, Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, she went there. She was the valedictorian in 1870. And then she was a Brooklyn native, but then came back to practice medicine in Brooklyn and found a lot of medical institutions in Brooklyn. But she still also retained um, a connection with that school. So that was a big one that was nearby and that many Brooklynites would have attended. The interesting thing about Stewart, we should point out that she's African-American and she's from this like incredible Brooklyn lineage. Her father is Sylvanus Smith, who was a major abolitionist leader here in Brooklyn, big activist in the 1830s and 40s. She herself was born, what, 1847? Mm-hmm. So it was sort of a next generation of this very established middle class black family in Brooklyn. She becomes really well-known across all of Brooklyn and is treating not just black patients, but white and black men and women. Like, by the 1890s, she's sort of known as, like, one of the pillars of Brooklyn in terms of medicine. I mean, that's a remarkable story. Yeah, that's really. And it's got to be, like, a total outlier, right? Yeah, it seems to be. I (laughs) mean, it's hard because we don't have a lot of stories about female physicians and especially women of color. So, Do we know if there were any other African-American students at that Manhattan Medical School? That's a great question. I do not know. Yeah. yeah. But in our records, we largely have not seen a lot of, in the 19th century, right. a lot of other black female doctors, as particularly with the reputation that Dr. Stewart has, right? Yeah, no, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. Um it prompts a question for me, which is that, you know, obviously the, hers is like an intersectional story, yeah. right? But it makes me wonder, um, like, how did the barriers that women faced in entering the profession compare to, say, like black male doctors in Brooklyn? I would assume that they would face not the same, but, you know, similarly limiting um, sort of boundaries to getting in. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of interesting parallels in terms of one, segregated education and like challenges being able to just go to school to become a physician. And then another challenge is definitely uh, having enough patients, being able to make a living, Mm -hmm. especially if kind of convention or attitudes are saying you can mostly serve a certain community of patients. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely there's challenges also in terms of joining medical societies and sort of making connections and being part of that process of professionalization. So, you know, women are forming separate medical societies in the late 19th century, and African-Americans are also, African-Americans are setting up their own hospitals and nursing schools, and uh, a lot of the earliest places to get a medical education, if you are black, were at uh, historically black colleges. So there are some interesting comparisons about, yeah, these institutional and kind of structural barriers. And and where would, I mean, we know that um, we said that um, Stewart was a kind of unique, uh, you know, person in, in that history, but where would black women go? Could black women join the black medical societies or could they join the women's societies? Like where, how are they finding their place? That's a great question. I have not unearthed like documents yet from 
our local women's medical society. That's definitely something I would love to find more information on. Um, I do know that one of the local medical, the like Kings County Homeopathic Medical Society, um, by I want to say the 1890s, Stewart was a member, mm. but. In 1870s, there was a, a woman who actually had to sue to be admitted. <laughs> so probably in those decades, there was some challenges that maybe allowed, you know, women and women of color to join some of these organizations. It is such an interesting question. Is it like the way that this woman would have navigated two like largely separate segregations? Yeah. yeah. of her profession and this question of would she be allowed over here to the right and would she be allowed over here to the left and yet like she finds this remarkable success um, being able to treat people across color and across gender that seems so unusual for the time. So I think one of the reasons that Stewart might have been so popular is that she was really active in a lot of other community things so she was like the organ player at her church for many years. She was involved in temperance and suffrage. And so I came across this with other female physicians. You know, the few that we've been able to uncover is that they weren't just in medicine and sort of, you know, practicing medicine. They were often involved in other community work or other political work. And so that might have helped you know, people like Stewart become really well known is that she's in all these different parts of the community. So that actually makes a lot of sense because we're also now moving into the progressive yeah. era, right? And so their medical sort of professional training and their community work is linked to a broader network of reform that's really transforming Brooklyn and the United States. So how is the progressive era, if at all, changing sort of the experiences or the approaches of women physicians? Well, it's interesting because the progressive era, there's a lot more interest in public health. So there is a lot more infrastructure and sort of jobs opening up related to medical things. And it is a lot of opportunities for women, but the number of female physicians actually goes down in the 20th century because a lot of these new jobs that women are entering into are things like nursing and social work and stuff like that. So, you know, women are kind of moving from being physicians to these other female-dominated professions that are, you know, related to medicine or part of medicine, but also have less authority. And this kind of parallels the shift in in politics, right? So there was, you know, during the mid to late 19th century, the suffragist claim was based on equal. We are the same. Therefore, we deserve the same kind of right. We're human. Yes. Yes. And then there's a change, right? There's a different kind of appeal. Yeah. To a a very distinct, unique feminine quality that that will clean up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you see this happening in terms of the professionalization, too. Right. That Mm -hmm. the the notion of like very gendered notion of like what a woman's work would be and what it wouldn't be yeah and it makes me think Aaron of the um of the one gynecologist the female gynecologist that has a book has actually been written about who's mm-hmm. from Brooklyn a woman named Mary Dixon Jones in the context of this I it now makes me think about her differently so just like a little bit of background on her the book is called 
Conduct Unbecoming a Woman. Oh. If anyone wants a good right. read, it's actually a pretty scintillating read. And this woman is a gynecologist, and she's also like at the forefront of experimental gynecological surgery. So in a sort of a flip of like Dr. Stewart, um, Mary Dixon Jones is not as concerned about care, right? <laughs> and she's actually really concerned about like breaking new ground mm. in the f- experimental field of gynecological surgery. And she has a lot of successes with these new techniques until she doesn't, right? Until yeah. she has a death and basically it gets sued um, and is brought into court. And what's so interesting is that part of the reason she's on trial, right, is actually that kind of male right. approach like she dared to do like she dared right. do what the men were doing it wasn't yeah. about yeah. care it wasn't about yeah. let me pat yeah. your head yeah, yeah. it was i'm gonna cut you open and right. i'm gonna you know right. tie your right. you know tubes together in right. this particular way right. and like i'm going to like wor- you know remove a tumor using this new um you know this new technique and that was a completely different approach to the way that these sort of progressive era care focused female physicians would have operated mm-hmm. and actually that would have been different even from from before the progressive era, a lot of female physicians were still using kind of those gendered arguments of like, well, women are going to be great doctors and maybe especially for women mm-hmm. patients because we know how to care and we think more holistically about the patient. So as a result of of these changes during the progressive era, what what becomes of, you know, the trajectory of women doctors in terms of these you know, the medical schools that were open in the 19th century and um, the, you know, what, what happens to, the, to women in the profession? Well, a lot of those separate medical schools close. So in like the 1890s especially, they're struggling a lot. And this is partially because I think they were always kind of struggling for money, <laughs> which, again, there's actually a parallel, I think, to black institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but It's also partially because as medicine has been changing throughout the 19th century, and especially at the end, it's moving more towards the scientific method and they've discovered germs. And so like lab work and testing and all this stuff is now a bigger part of medicine. And it's sort of shifted some of the ideals for physicians and for care. And so women it's a way of also pushing women out but then logistically for these schools it also costs a lot more money to run a medical school because you have to have these new labs and also due to new laws you have to have a certain amount of classes and take a number of years to be licensed as a physician and so most of those separate women's colleges I think only a few exist today uh, most of them kind of wither away at that turn of the century era and when do we see the number of female physicians begin to rise again after this drop in the early 20th century? Not until like second wave feminism wow. and the 60s wow. and the 70s. Yeah. yeah. So there's like a big jump where like rates of women in medical school kind of before second wave feminism are like 9% or something. And then by the mid 70s, it's somewhere like 29%. You know, it's getting up higher. Today in medical schools, it's roughly half and half men and women in terms of, yeah, students. But there isn't quite parity in terms of practice. So there's more male physicians and female physicians. And definitely there's not parity in terms of leadership roles. 
And then still today, there are certain, uh, you know, parts of medicine that are dominated by women and dominated by men. And so gynecology, of course, originally was one dominated by women and continues to be today. So um, but things also like pediatrics and family care, those are some of the parts of medicine where there are more female physicians and also you get paid more as a female physician. Beyond just like the loss of like generations of Susan McKinney stewards that were lost mm-hmm. in the decline yeah. of, of women in the profession in the 19th, in the 20th century. It's also just interesting to think about the, like the, like the legacy of the impact it had on the profession. I mean, I'm just struck by the studies that are, that are, you see proliferating now about male doctors and sometimes doctors in general sort of lack of empathy towards women's pain or the discounting Mm -hmm. of women's pain. I was blown away by the article that was in the Times a few weeks ago about um, black women's, uh, black infant mortality Mm -hmm. and black maternal mortality. Like the incredible story in Vogue about Serena Williams' yeah, birth yeah. and the fact that she had all these medical complications and this woman like knows her body better than anyone. Right. She's like the best doctors in the world and is saying, help me, help me, help me. And yeah. everyone is ignoring her. It's fascinating to think about these contemporary stories when we contextualize them in this larger story you've painted of the gendering of the medical profession in the 20th century and beyond. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. For our Into the Archives section, we're lucky enough to have Aaron sticking around with us as we plumb through our amazing manuscript collections related to the history of public health. You've picked out a really amazing document for us to look at in this segment. It is the Memorial Hospital Tablet, which is a, it looks like to be a publication Mm -hmm. um, from the Memorial Hospital for Women and Children, and it's in Brooklyn. So tell us about this Memorial Hospital for Women and Children. This is a hospital. It started off as a dispensary in 1881. And a dispensary is sort of like today's like free clinic. Like it was a place for people who didn't really have money to pay for medical care to drop in and receive some care. So it starts off as a dispensary and then sort of grows over time to also include a hospital. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this was that it is a hospital for women, and it is run completely by women. That's amazing. Yeah, wow. Wow, so it's just like it's women or the staff. Yeah, all of it's actually in their bylaws that all of the staff members have to be women. Yeah, and so this was something that I actually was not really aware of when I started looking through the archives and came across this. But after doing more research, found out that in addition to developing separate medical schools for women because of all the problems they had getting into other medical schools, they also developed separate hospitals oftentimes where women could practice because some hospitals wouldn't allow female physicians or would only allow them to like tend to certain types of patients and stuff like that. So this is one of many, actually, hospitals that developed in Brooklyn and across the nation that were, you know, for women doctors to practice, essentially, because they couldn't do it elsewhere. 
so this is it's so interesting because this is really like the perfect example of the kind of gendered split that we Mm -hmm. saw in the profession right so this is a hospital for women and children mm-hmm. there's so much care kind of implied in that mm-hmm. and then again that kind of almost like this the, the building of a rebuilding of a separate spheres model mm-hmm. um, in the very public medical profession the idea that women are uniquely sort of suited to not only care for women and children but to run an entire organization that's de- that are dedicated to them that's fascinating Yeah. And I think they, you know, put that in the bylaws to make sure that it always would be a place for women to have the experience and to make the decisions and be in leadership roles and all of those things. And it couldn't be sort of like overtaken, you know, by men kind of coming in or something. You know, I mean, I I, kind of guess want to pause and just put a greater emphasis on this point of understanding that these training grounds as being really important to part of getting a foothold in the profession and I think it's not just going to school it's like what are the other kinds of opportunities that you have to be availed that have to be available to you in order for you to advance in the profession and so I think you know that's something when when people think about issues of like the pipeline and who who is qualified to take on a role um, you know it's not just like education that there are certain really very practical things and certainly in in medicine, this is very true, that you have to have a chance to be able to do. And so I think it's quite remarkable that that this existed um, at this time and that they were very clear that this, you know, we're, we're, we're providing health care for women and children, but we're also providing career advancement and development and training for, for women. I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and patience. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like, yeah. You need to be a practicing doctor. You need patients (laughs) to care for, right? So who were the patients at this place? It would have been a mix of people, I think, because in terms of the pricing, there is some variation. So there's, you know, kind of more affordable options if you were to stay in like a large ward where you're sharing the space with lots of other patients. But then also from the pricing, we can tell that they did have like private rooms that were somewhere from like 15 to $30, you know, a week, which is definitely more than a working person is making. So those would have been for obviously more well-off patients. And then definitely the dispensary that's connected with the hospital was more of a like sort of urgent care or free clinic type thing. So that always would have been catering more towards working class people that couldn't have like a physician come to their home or something like that. So where was where was the hospital located or where was the was the dispensary and the hospital in the same place? <laughs> they were not. Okay. So the dispensary um, was located in Bedsty, mm-hmm. and so it stayed in the same location. I believe, over the number of decades that the hospital existed. And then the hospital moved around quite a bit, um, different locations as it just grew in size. And then they also had a fire, I think, in 1894. So it actually, I haven't been able to clearly figure out if they had a completely new building or if they just had to rebuild part of it. Um, but yeah, it's sort of in the Prospect Heights area in, in the, those different locations in the 1880s, 1890s. And of course, one of the exciting things that we did find in this was a list of the doctors who worked there. And among that list of the doctors was 
Susan McKinney Stewart. Wow. Yeah, she's actually one of the founders. Well, of there it. you go. Yeah. She, look, I we have to give it up to Susan <laughs> McKinney Stewart. She was like, "I'm gonna mm. play church on Sunday, but I'm a doctor," and she was <laughs> making and sure. Here and, and here, here yes, I I think that is that's quite remarkable that she pops up here. So, in, in terms of the governance of of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so the staff were all women. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the advisory? If there was an advisor and executive mm-hmm. leadership, how was that set up? So they have what they call a board of managers, and that's all women. Um, and only women get to vote on kind of leadership and, you know, the big decisions. That's badass. Right. Very that's much. amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They do have advisors that are men. So they have a separate advisory committee. Again, this is in their bylaws. Um, that says it, they have to have an advisory committee of at least 15 gentlemen. Um, so they are, you know, taking in some of the advice, you know, from male Brooklynites. And occasionally they might have um, kind of consulting surgeons or physicians that would come in that would be that would be men. But none of the regular uh, staff or the people yeah, governing the institution would have been men. It brings us Back to the document, actually, yeah. because what we're actually looking at is a newsletter, right? And so what you're saying makes me think about funding. Like, how was this hospital mm-hmm. funded? And, like, what kinds of structures would these badass women have to put in <laughs> place to get the legitimacy that might sort of garner support, financial support from the city? And, I mean, that's the first thing that like comes to an, mind. Like a this, group of advisory like group gentlemen. Of gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> advising and teaching them right i mean it's a bitter pill to swallow but they were like you know this is what we got to do to uh you know keep afloat and i don't know so that that makes me think we should look a little bit at this document yes and think about some of the some of the really interesting historical lessons we can pull from it when you look through this document i mean it's a newsletter and just before we get focused in you know typically newsletters are reports, organizational reports that are sent out to people so that they know where their resources are going, right? And this is no different. This newsletter, as you flip through it, you see uh, reports of activities and we treated this number of patients here, we did this much there. And then there's a there's a solicitation for support. This is one section that's titled Sustaining Members, and I'm just going to read it. Every charity, especially a hospital, needs a permanent fund so that a certain amount of its support may be assured. Many who would be glad to give personal services, either in looking after its practical management or in making collections for its support, are debarred from doing so by pressure of family and other cares. Many women are busy with clubs or in public matters. We would urge all busy women to become sustaining members by subscribing. Oh, my God. That's like so progressive era. It is so <laughs> progressive it's, era. It's the women's it's club movement. Amazing. It's like you're so busy yes. with your settlement housework yes, over here yes. and your sanitary commission work over here. They just send us five dollars. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and it, it does. It You know, you've had like the first few generations of women who have gone to college. And so that there's an emerging kind of class access that these women have. And just the fact that they're appealing to women specifically says something about the, you know, the status of women as seen through this document. But then it, those dollar signs go up, yeah. right? I mean, so it's like, five, you know, $5 sustaining a member. But then as you go into the next page, after hospital rates, which Aaron, you talked about a little bit earlier, you can do endowments and you can endow a bed for wow. five grand, you know? Um, 
or a thousand dollars for that's in perpetuity or a thousand dollars for life or three hundred dollars for one year so there i mean what strikes me is that a significant a number of pages in this significant yeah. newsletter are really dedicated. They're covered in dollar signs, right? Yeah, and you they're know, dedicated the, to fundraising. And you know, you know, this is not that unusual. You know, hospitals endow wings and rooms and you know uh, chairs and all kinds of things like that. So these aren't. The, so this is just par for the course. I think the other thing that's interesting to me as you look at the newsletters um, in that same on that same page on the one column where it's like what I would consider pretty standard solicitation for a, a medical facility. There are these advertisements, like there's one for a carpet cleaner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so, you know, this kind of speaks to, I would say, the resourcefulness of trying to get support wherever that support could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of ads for like, you know, pianos and opticians and stuff. But one that strikes me is the syrup of figs ad, right? <laughs> um, so this is actually... Something that is medicinal. Yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to help your digestion. And there actually are, as you said, a lot of like advertisements for kind of random businesses in Brooklyn mm-hmm. or that might have been in the neighborhood or something. But then there are some that are kind of more health oriented like this one or there's one for mineral water, which be- was believed to be very healthy and good for you um, and lots of other stuff. So they're they're going kind of in different directions, as yeah. you said, just like they this need money. Though. This <laughs> reminds me of like when you go to the doctor and he's like, oh, I have these free samples oh, for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Here, try this. And, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's it is interesting. Like, you know, there's a very controversial history of like, patent medicines. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you know, if if you spend any time in 19th or early 20th century journalism, you see ads like this everywhere. And it is interesting to think about what the balance of decisions would be yeah. on the part of a set of, you know, of, of doctors saying, well, we need the money and we could use the advertising revenue. But on the other hand, I don't know if this is... Yeah, there's the syrup an ass- of figs is yeah. like maple syrup. I mean, you there's, know? <laughs> there's an assumption of endorsement. That's right. There's an assumption that like if your medical facility is including this in there, even though it's an ad, there's this this sense of like, oh, maybe this is good. It, it would be it would have been interesting to know like what are the kind of deliberations, yeah, yeah, that debates. are happening over yeah. over this, if if any, if any, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. we don't want to maybe put too much on them, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um. I like this next page where you get to see some great faces of some women doctors in the middle of surgery. Erin, tell us a little bit about this. In the newsletter, they usually include some sort of photograph of kind of the nurses or the doctors in action, you know, to kind of show what they're doing. And this particular one is a female uh, surgeon is performing surgery and assisted all by women. So that's really interesting. But then also underneath the photograph, it tells the story of a doctor who had come from Chicago, a Dr. E.H. Pratt. And so he had come to New York to kind of like do the rounds and he ended up performing some surgeries at the hospital. Hospital, and also like heaped a lot of praise on Memorial Hospital and said he, you know, thought they were really skilled and doing a great job. Um, yeah. And so then the newsletter goes on to say, may the time soon come when all surgical work required by women shall be done by women surgeons. Our records show some remarkable capital operations skillfully performed by members of our staff followed by the rapid convalescence of the patients. Why not? <laughs> Again, it's this like, oh my God, these women are such badasses. Like this picture, <laughs> well, I'm going to put it up on the show notes. Yeah, it's yeah. really moving, you know, yeah. like a, just a bunch of women doing their 
doing their doing I, their medical you know, work. This you is, know, I, I feel like we're I feel like we've had we're stumbling on the hidden figures of yes, <laughs> right? of yes. medicine in the yeah. 19th century. Except we should be clear <laughs> that it looks like all the women in the it does look are like white. all white. Although yeah. you know, we've Dr. Got, Stewart Dr. is Dr. there. Stewart. Yeah. yeah, but no, but it's still it's it's such an amazing story to to uncover and to be able to have a document that verifies it and with a picture mm-hmm. that these women are doing this but I would say like just to play devil's advocate it is at the same time reinforcing this idea of like women are uniquely built yeah. to care it, it, because it's not like may may the day come when all surgery is performed by right, women right, right? right it's all surgery performed on women right by women right and again it goes back to like these very like almost puritanical you know yeah <laughs> values yeah. of like modesty and women should only focus on the care of women and of course they're justifying it and they're saying we're as good you know what i mean but it is still setting a precedent that can prove to be very right. problematic right down the road. i mean i guess it's yeah. the, the question most of these historical actors weren't debating this but it was the how much are you reinscribing the you know the the gender stereotypes versus how much are you finding crack in the wall uh to break down so another thing that really interests me in this newsletter is that we learn a little bit about the type of people that would have received care mm-hmm. both at the hospital and the dispensary so in addition to giving numbers of just like this many people came here or there are this many surgeries we also have information about the nationality of new patients and old patients and stuff like that. And we also see that actually in the annual reports for the hospital. So it's interesting to get a sense of like how the demographics of Brooklyn might be changing or what is sort of held over from mm-hmm. earlier eras. Ooh, tell us. Yes. Yeah. Is there any that stand out like <laughs> yeah. the, that surprised you in the list? Yeah. Well, so some are... Not as surprising, I suppose, which is a lot of people born in the United States and a lot from Ireland or Germany, Mm -hmm. which we had big waves of immigrants coming from those places, you know, earlier in the 19th century. But we do see some like uh, indications of change that's going to happen on a wider scale later. So, for example, in this particular newsletter, they mentioned that one patient is from the West Indies. Mm. So, you know, only one. But we know that there's going to be lots of people coming from the Caribbean. Right. and later yeah. on. Right. Um, yeah, in here and also in some of the annual reports, they mention, you know, people coming from the Middle East and Asia and, you know, again, not a lot in terms of numbers, but we see that even early on, we have people coming from all over the world to Brooklyn. That's amazing. Yeah, wow. So uh, you mentioned earlier that this hospital continues to struggle financially yeah. kind of throughout its history. You also mentioned that there was a fa- pretty bad fire at mm-hmm. some point. So, you know, tell us how, tell us the end of our story, I guess, <laughs> of the Memorial Hospital for Women and Children. Yeah, well, they're definitely throughout their history, kind of, as we've talked about, working for the money, right? Um, but especially in the 1890s, like the economy as a whole is not doing great. And they actually mention in their annual reports, like that there's a greater demand for their services but they just don't have the money. Uh, Ultimately, in the first decade of the 20th century, they do end up just having to shut down and sell their building Mm. to another hospital, I believe. Yeah, I think it was the Jewish Hospital Society. Yeah. They bought it for... um $96,500 in 1903, and that's the end of our remarkable all-female 
hospital. But it is interesting to connect this back to what you're saying about sort of changing waves of immigration yeah. because the Jewish Hospital Society buys this building in the neighborhood of yeah, essentially right. Crown Heights, yeah, yeah. right? Because at that time, I mean, now people call it Prospect Heights, but back then it was like Northwestern Crown Heights. And um, certainly the late 19th century, early 20th century, significant wave of Jewish migrants to this part of Brooklyn. And and this establishment of Crown Heights is a, a kind of thriving middle and upper middle class uh, neighborhood, in part driven by an orphanage, a Jewish orphanage, uh, medical facilities and doctors, you know, and what would evolve into what was called Doctors Row, which was President Street in Crown Heights. So this is we can say that, you know, this memorial hospital helps add to this attraction that um, helps shape the future identity of Crown Heights. In this Voices of Brooklyn, we're going to listen to an oral history with Dr. Josephine English. Dr. English was born in 1920 in Ontario, Virginia. She attended Hunter College as an undergraduate and attained a master's degree in psychology from New York University. She went on to study medicine at Meharry Medical School in Nashville, Tennessee. Upon graduation in 1949, she worked as one of New York's first African-American female doctors at Harlem Hospital. After relocating to Brooklyn to work and live, Dr. English founded the Women's Health Center, the Adelphi Medical Center, and the Paul Robeson Theater in the Fort Greene neighborhood of Brooklyn. She delivered thousands of children, including all six of Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz's children, and she passed away in 2011 at the age of 91. So her voice might sound familiar to our regular listeners because we've listened to her oral history before. We actually featured her in our Malcolm X in Brooklyn episode. Yes. Another thing we just want to point out about this clip, um, you're going to hear a lot from the interviewer here, um, Sadie Sullivan. Shout out to Sadie Sullivan. Shout out to Sadie, our formal, our former oral historian before Zaheer joined our team. Um, so you'll get a lot more back and forth here between them than you normally do in the oral history yeah. clips we select. Medicine was very difficult for women because the men put up a lot, a very a big fight. Mm. They did not want the women. Mm-hmm. So, but now I, they got accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, now they're more women, I think, than men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any instances where you felt that in particular? Well, I went to, I went to Harlem Hospital for mm-hmm. my uh, school and um, that's where you did your residency. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, it was a very hostile atmosphere. Number one, they were just integrating black doctors in the hospital. Wow! And um, there were very few women, mm-hmm. and the men were hostile to them. Mm-hmm. So, were you dealing with with? It took a, a lot to 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 contend with them. Mm-hmm. You had to have the personality to deal with them mm-hmm. because they did not want you mm-hmm. to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me more about that, about the integration. Was was medical school, what was the racial well, dynamics to, there? No, I went to a medical school in Nashville, Tennessee mm-hmm. that was totally black. Oh, okay. Yeah, now it's, it's the opposite. It's, 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 I think it's more white there now than black. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, in the South, Nashville, Tennessee, and it was totally black. Was it a historically black oh, medical yeah. school? I mean, oh, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was one of the few because at that time they only had, they had one. Medical school at there and one at Howard. Mm-hmm. 
So mm-hmm. it was one of the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the name of the school? I'm Harry, M-E-H-A-R-R-Y, mm-hmm. Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then, um, so what was that like to then come back to New well, York and have it? it was like I had never been south. So that was an experience for me. Oh, yeah. Um, because at that time, we had all the uh, segregation. Mm-hmm. But it didn't bother me because, number one, I I went there to study. I didn't go there to socialize. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have much money, so I couldn't shop or do or go around. And I didn't go to the movies. I don't go to the movies here. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really bother me. Mm-hmm. I was really, It's really like an isolated uh, case, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you you go there and you study, you go to school, you come home. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no socialization. Mm-hmm. But you noticed a big difference between Englewood, New Jersey, and Nashville, oh, Tennessee. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A big difference. Mm-hmm. But it was it was segregation at its height. Mm-hmm. So it was a good experience. I had never had it before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so tell me more about um, Harlem Hospital and, and what that was like. Well, Harlem Hospital was just integrating black doctors. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what year was that about? 1949, I graduated medical school. Mm-hmm. So I came there by 50, 51, around, around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Harlem Hospital was in a, in a totally segregated community, mm-hmm. as you know, Harlem, at that time, because Harlem is now no longer a segregated community. That's true. So times change. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. But um, they had a lot of very prominent white physicians, mm-hmm. and they let in a few blacks at a time. Mm. Yeah. And that's where I, I trained. Mm-hmm. 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 And were there other women? No. Very few. Mm-hmm. Very few. Were there other black women? They're very few. I, I think maybe one other. Mm-hmm. Or two. Or two. Very few. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did that, that feel to you? I mean, how were, how were your colleagues? My colleagues mm-hmm. at the school? How at, were, at Harlem Hospital. Oh, they were good. I, I got along with them well, mm-hmm. even though it was difficult. Mm-hmm. But you have to know how to get along with men mm-hmm. <laughs> who think they're superior to you. What were your strategies? Well, I got I listened to them, and they always seemed to try to teach me. So I wasn't uh, trying to be or go over them or surpass them or equal them. Mm. So I, I got along very well. I made some very fast friends. First of all, I'm so glad that we listened to that whole thing. Yes. Um, because in that back and forth, there actually was so, it was, they, this went, interview went to so many places. Yeah. We got to explore the experiences of segregation mm-hmm. from an African-American woman who who spent most of her life in the North. Yes. We got to think about the psychology yeah. of sexism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there really, there really yes. is so much yes. there. Let's just start with where it ended, right? I was thinking about the conversation we had in the earlier segments about women assuming the gendered role, the feminine role as a means of, I don't want to say empowerment, but to allow them to do what it is that they want to do. And so when she's like, I didn't talk over them, I didn't try to surpass the men because the men want to feel like they're teaching you all the time. And I was like, that's really messed up, you know, that she had to do that. 
But, you know, she negotiated that. I think that is something that a lot of women, even today, this would resonate oh, with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, for, for people who aren't here, you should see my, you should see my co-host's face like, light up when I said that. When she said that, I mean, my, my reaction was like, God, nothing's changed. I mean, yeah. so much has changed, yeah. of yeah. course. Yeah. But that is, I think, the interesting thing about thinking about not the structures of sexism, but the psychology yeah. of sexism. Yeah. In it, what has, by that point, become such a male-dominated field that there is this question, it's funny, the word that we used earlier of expediency. Could I push this? Could I show them how how brilliant I am? Right. She's clearly a brilliant and superior doctor, yes. right? Or do I keep my head down? Do I nod? Do I like let them think that they're teaching me something? And do I get my residency done and get out there and help the people yeah. who need to be no, helped? And, I mean- and I'm also gonna like I'm gonna make a little bit of like a provocative argument, which is that I think that English is like a lot of sexism to bear was maybe in some ways more difficult than uh, Mary Dixon Jones or Susan McKinney Stewart. And here's, and here's what I'm thinking. When we talked to Aaron, we really talked about in the 19th century, like a medical f- profession in flux. Yeah. That it, it developed in fits and stops. For a while, it seemed like there was a way to use this sort of separate spheres argument yeah, yeah, to yeah, like yeah. really create a niche for women doctors. But of course, we saw that that decline, right? right. Like that right. failure and that precipitous drop in physicians. Right. And of course, um, you know, Dr. English is like the, f- like a pioneer in this first wave of women back before a second right. wave feminism even right. happens. By this time, the medical field is entrenched. Yeah. It is a, a hegemon. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she is defying that. It is a structure that is so much more powerful than it was in the 19th century. And then, of course, she's also experiencing this in light of going to the South and going to a historically black medical school and and experiencing segregation for the first time. It's remarkable to think about the unbelievable structures that she faced. And, you know, I think it's interesting. She is, we've used the term a lot on our podcast and rightfully so of intersectionality. And and certainly as as a black woman doctor, she is at the intersection of both experiencing racism and sexism. And I think that the resources, the psychological and emotional resources that she draws upon to help deal with one, help her also deal with the other. So going into Nashville to Meharry, well-respected, historically black college, but facing racism. So she comes back north and like these men, she's probably like, y'all ain't nothing to me, (laughs) right? Because I've dealt with racism. And on the flip side, similarly having, you know, experienced the sexism that she experienced like dealing with racists she's like y'all ain't none to me either and so I think that there is this I think a lot of times we think of intersectionality as the intersection of a kind of victimized experience and it certainly is you know being at the intersection at the brunt of these multiple forces but I think also skill um, building it is skill you know like someone who can make it through that intersection is a lot more um, potentially a lot more powerful than someone who just crossed the street. Absolutely. That's, I c- couldn't have put it better. Totally. This is okay. Here's the other thing that really stands out to me, and this is a little less to do with her gender. I just keep thinking about the all-white doctors at Harlem yeah. Hospital in 1949. I mean, that is remarkable. And to think about yeah. what it was like <laughs> yeah. to 
be a black person yeah. going into Harlem yeah. Hospital with some strange, mysterious ailment yeah. and facing white doctors and all of the preconceived notions that they bring, despite the, you know, veiled yeah, yeah. faux objectivity that defines. I mean, and so that's another thing that I'm thinking about is that I think she had a very clear understanding that her medical training was an act of activism. Yeah. Yeah. And so she was like, say what you need to say. Condescend what you right. need to condescend. <laughs> right. I got stuff to do. Yes. I there are yes. people here that I want to I yes. want to help. Yes. I want to provide empathic excellent right. care to black women right. all over Imagine the city. Imagine walking into Harlem Hospital and seeing her as your doctor. You must burst into tears of yeah. happiness. Yeah. I mean it's quite it's quite remarkable to think about how different that would have been in a day with particularly with gynecology when we so associate women um, with that particular subfield. But oh my gosh, I can't I can't imagine what a what a revolutionary sight that must have been at the time. As always, BHS has an amazing lineup of programs in the coming month, and Julie and I would like to highlight two that we are hoping you check out. For me, on Wednesday, May 16th, The Poetry of Kevin Young. Kevin Young is the director of the New York Public Library Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture and poetry editor of The New Yorker. He is going to be bringing his latest collection of poems titled Brown, to the BHS stage. Kevin Young also published to wide critical acclaim last year, Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post Facts, and Fake News. He will be joined in conversation with a fellow distinguished poet and recently appointed president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, Elizabeth Alexander. So this is definitely two powerhouses. Yeah, this is a lineup yeah. not to be missed. Again, this is Wednesday, May 16th. The doors open at 6 p.m. The event begins at 6.30. And admission is $10, general admission $5 for members. Julie, what are you looking at? So the event I'm excited about is a little bit later in the month. Um, on Tuesday, May 29th, here at BHS Pierpont, we're doing Walt Whitman Turns 199, <laughs> Harbors, oh, wow. Heights, and a Brooklyn Celebration. So this, I think, should be a lot of fun. So we're going to party like it's 199. We're going to party like we're Walt Whitman. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Walt Whitman is, you know, like our consummate Brooklynite. And this program features a great group of Whitman luminaries and aficionados that include Greg Truppiano of the Walt Whitman Project, Charles Jardin, and Julian McCrone of the Fort Greene Park Conservancy, Karen Carbiner of NYU, and the Walt Whitman Initiative, along with readers, I bet this is going to be great, Lonely Christopher and Elizabeth Nunez, and opera singer Nicole Mitchell. Oh, wow. So this is going to be like a multimedia, many experience. This is a serious of, party going on. This is going to be a Walt Whitman party, right? Which it should be. I'm particularly excited about this because Whitman makes a number of appearances in Waterfront, the exhibition that I curated that opened a couple months ago at our second location at BHS Dumbo. And just a shout out to one of those places in the exhibition where we were lucky enough to bring on Jeffrey Wright to read Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Oh, awesome. And it's as great as you think it is. And so everyone should also, besides going to this event, make their way over to BHS Dumbo and listen to the unbelievable voice of Jeffrey Wright reading that iconic 
Brooklyn, an American poem. So that event is, as I said, uh, Tuesday, May 29th, and that's at BHS Pierpont. Doors open at 6. Event is at 6.30. It's $5 general admission free for members, which we know all of our listeners are by now. Another perk of membership is that members receive early access to this event. So we'll put links to each of these events on our show notes so you all can check them out and buy tickets. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guest, Aaron Webker. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephseholoss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.